being led in song reminds, um, reminds me of those days when I used to be a song leader. And I think to myself, oh, thank goodness we've got better. <laughs> uh, turn with me, please, to James chapter 1. I'm really grateful for our team of song leaders and musicians. Um, they, they do a wonderful job leading us in song so that we may honor and exalt our great and glorious God. Back when I was a song leader, I usually found Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is an amazing psalm. But frankly, I used to find it rather disconcerting as a call to worship. I loved the invitation to praise God, our Creator, because of His incomparable greatness. But I always sort of got scared when, because the psalm would close, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter into my rest. I, I thought, why would the psalm close that way? It's such a downer. Now, Having studied my Bible better and understood my Bible better, I realized that the psalm captures the beauty and transforming power of living faith. And that's why I'm so glad that Jessica included, he will hold me fast in the set. Because when you read Psalm 95 through the lens of the gospel, you realize Yes, we can praise God and we can hear the warnings of the Psalms and take them seriously because our God holds us fast. Being astounded at the majesty of God should result in joyful adoration. And that adoration will reshape our desires which should result in loving obedience. And so if you come away from our worship service today determined to follow your own desires instead of submitting to this glorious God, then your worship has been a sham. No matter how loud, no matter how enthusiastic you are. And that's why James warns us against Deceiving ourselves in this text. Let's read James chapter 1, verse 19 to verse 27. James 1, 19 to 27. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror 
and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father, excuse me, accepts as pure and faith and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the word. This is the word of God. Last week, we talked about how God uses our trials to draw us to himself. Now, James takes it one step further and says, we are transformed as we submit to God's word. Remember that the book of James was addressed to Jewish congregations going through difficult times because they were Jews who acknowledge Jesus as God's Messiah. They're very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures and with the life and teaching of Jesus. And that's why as you read the book of James, you will hear the Sermon of the Mount echoing in your minds. And just like Jesus, James isn't telling us to earn our salvation. He is challenging us in this text to examine our hearts. Because living faith is dynamic. It must be growing. It must be transformative. If our faith is genuine, then we should be changing to reflect the character of God more and more. And so when James tells us everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, he is not simply warning us against our favorite and sometimes only exercise of jumping to conclusions. He is challenging us to reflect the character of God who describes himself in the book of Exodus this way. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Slow, uh, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath is a challenge to become like our God who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And James says this because his congregation would have been facing hardship and exploitation. And in that context, one, it is easy to get angry. And James wants us to respond to those difficult and unjust situations that we face with actions that reflect the righteous character of God. That's why he says in verse 20, because human anger, be slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. The righteousness that God desires. According to, God, to Dan McCartney, The phrase, work God's righteousness, that's the rendering of another translation, is better taken as referring to bringing about God's justice. 
That is, the accomplishment of that which is justice in God's eyes, a setting things to right. James' point then is that although the wrath of a human being may indeed work what looks like justice to humans, it does not bring about the divine justice. It does not reflect the righteous character of God, nor does it accomplish that which God would regard as true righteousness. The justice of God is worked by combating evil, not in anger, but in meekness of gentleness, by receiving the implanted word seed of God. We've all been in situations where we've reacted and sought justice out of anger. And it never really works out well, right? Last month, I was in the Philippines, and I met women and children who had been rescued from sexual abuse. And just the thought of children being sexually exploited online by their own parents makes me angry. Makes me want to go John Wick, take no prisoners. Ah, you know who John Wick is. (laughs) We all feel that, right? Except John Wick doesn't really execute justice, does he? When I take matters into my own hands, more often than not, I am gratifying my self-righteous impulses. It doesn't produce justice. It only implicates me in an never-ending cycle of vengeance. So to go back to the situation of sexual exploitation, here's a contrast. The International Justice Mission works within the system, recognizing that God has put in place human structures, according to Romans 13. So they work seeking restorative justice by strengthening and transforming legal structures. I think it's a far better response that honors God's purposes for the world. And to cite a case in point, through their work, A young lady whom we will call Ruby was rescued from online sexual exploitation. Um, If you're familiar with City of Light, one of the main songwriters for City of Light, Rich Thompson, created a podcast telling the story of Ruby. Uh, Yes, you can Google it, not now, after the service. You can Google Finding Ruby, and I encourage you to listen to the podcast. Joelle and I listened to the podcast uh, when we were coming back from the SYNC conference in Nashville, and it was a powerful story. She was rescued from online sexual exploitation, and she was consumed with hate as she testified against her abusers. But throughout that process, God was at work in her life. She eventually put her faith in Christ. And at the sentencing of her abusers, she surprised the lawyers, she surprised everybody by reaching out to her abusers. They acknowledged the wrong they had done and she forgave them. That is working the righteousness of God. Ruby reflected 
the character of our Lord Jesus Christ, who on the cross prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So James, in this text, is calling us to a radical reorientation of life, from being driven by our selfish desires to being shaped by the Word of God. That's why he says in verse 21, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls. This means more than try harder or do better. Because James, in verse 18, speaks of the total transformation that comes from being born again. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. James here is applying the promise of the new covenant to us. We must get rid of filthiness and rampant wickedness because God promised in Ezekiel 36, the passage that Mary read, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is a promise. A promise that is fulfilled because Christ died and rose again and we have the spirit of God dwelling in our hearts. And so we can get rid of filth and wickedness. Because Christ died and rose again so that those who trust in him would be forgiven of their sins. And as forgiven people, we rid ourselves of the sins that were part of our old way of life. See, purity of life is non-negotiable. No excuses. God has given us new hearts indwelt by his Spirit. And he is, even now, at work in us, transforming our desires and giving us new affections. And those new affections are defined by the Word of God. That's why James speaks of receiving with meekness the implanted Word. He now references Jeremiah's description of God's new covenant work. Where God says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. That's why James can say, receive with meekness the implanted word. I will be the God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord. Because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. See, that's our privilege. God has promised to write his law in our hearts. There is a change now from Microsoft to Mac. We're no longer Windows. Sorry, all you Windows people. We are no longer hardwired to sin. We have a new nature. And because of that, we will obey the word of God. As Doug Moo says, 
Christians who have been truly born again, according to verse 18, demonstrate that the word has transformed them by their humble acceptance of that word as their authority and guide for life. So to go back to the image that James uses, the word God implanted needs to bear fruit by transforming our lives. And so here's the challenge for each of us. Have I grown in love for the people around me since I professed faith in Christ? Have I been fighting for the pleasure of God so that I am quicker to confess my sin than I was five years ago? Have my priorities changed since I professed faith in Christ? See, James is saying that we need to live out the new identity and new life that God has given us. Faithfulness doesn't happen by accident. We need to keep striving to grow in likeness of, to Christ till the day we die or Christ returns. Because in verse 21, when James says, which can, which can save you, he is orienting us to ultimate salvation. According to Mu, again, James here portrays salvation as future from the standpoint of the believer. Some Christians accustomed to equating salvation with conversion or regeneration might be troubled by this future orientation. But in fact, such a focus is quite customary in the New Testament where the verbs save and the noun salvation often refer to the believer's ultimate deliverance from sin and death that takes place at the time of Christ's return in glory. Or to put it in our terms, we live in the already, not yet. We are awaiting the consummation of our salvation. And as we await Christ's return, in the words of Eugene Peterson, we are called to a long obedience in the same direction. And that's why James goes on to say in verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It's not enough to know the word. It has to transform our lives. We have to put it into practice. On Sunday, we had a great time during our potluck Q&A. Oh, no, it wasn't potluck. It was the barbecue Q&A. We had a great time talking about maintaining the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And that's great. But if you didn't come away from that conversation depending on God more... You didn't learn it. You, you missed the point. Understanding that God is sovereign and we are responsible should result in us saying, Lord, I need you. I need to rely on you. You see, focusing on theology without living it out is dangerous. Jim Davis and Michael Graham in a, a recent book called The Great Dechurching points this out. When a church gets more excited about being right than reaching hearts, it has become confessional at the expense of the mission. When a church has more zeal for right doctrine than it has lost its first love. Walls go up. 
It no longer sees itself as sent into the world, but focuses only on protecting itself and its doctrine from a hostile world that could grab us and our children at any moment. If love for Jesus and the people he came to redeem is toppled by a love for right doctrine, that will create an insular, prideful church. A church that loses its first love, Jesus, then loses love for its neighbor, which is replaced by a prideful love of being right. Now, please understand, I am not saying we should de-emphasize doctrine. On the contrary, I am saying that we need to keep deepening our understanding of truth by putting it into practice. See, doctrine is like math. The more you practice it, the better you understand it. Or perhaps better put, the more you try to solve math problems, the more you understand how little you understand. <laughs> and that's great. We sang a while ago, I will wait for you. It is only as we put God's word into practice that we realize how truly needy we are. Because we fail more than we succeed in obeying. And that's by design. Because it drives us back to our knees, running to Christ, recognizing how much we need him to change us. And that's why God's word functions like a mirror. And you've been there. You wake up in the morning, you look in the mirror, and ah! Well, some of you, you're like, oh, awesome. <laughs> I'm not like that. <laughs> I just look, ew. Ew. <laughs> 